you would pray with me, and then we're going to look at those two passages together. But let's pray first. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place. We thank you for your word uh, and what it teaches us and what it tells us about who you are and the plans that you have for us, uh, the ways in which you are redeeming all of your creation, that you choose to use us to be part in that. And so we thank you uh, for the many gifts you've given us. We thank you for uh, what you've done for us in Jesus. Uh, We pray that as we spend time in your word, that you would be the one who leads and guides and teaches us. Uh, We cannot do any of this apart from you. And so we ask the spirit would move in this place, that you would take the eternal truth of your word and apply it uh, to our lives, that you would show us uh, what you have for us and the ways that you're moving and what is true of who we are. Uh, We pray this morning that we'd see that afresh, that you would continue to lead and guide us in all things. And so we thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name, amen. Uh, I remember uh, seeing a movie many years ago. Uh, I went back and watched a scene of it uh, this week, actually, because uh, uh, the movie's called Signs, and it was starring Mel Gibson. I don't know if you ever saw that movie way back when, but uh, it probably came out, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago now. Um, but the movie itself, I don't remember a whole lot about it. It wasn't like the greatest movie, but there was one scene in that movie that stuck with me for a long time. And if uh, if you've seen the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, I'll tell you real briefly. In the in the movie, Mel Gibson, the main character, his wife has passed away, and he's raising two children. He's actually living with his brother, and they're kind of doing this together, and that's some of the background of the movie. But about halfway through the movie, there's a flashback that lets you know how his wife died and what had happened. And the way the scene sets up is he he gets called out to the scene of an accident. Uh, And he lives in this small town and he knows all the people. He knows the people that are working there. And he's met by a woman who's a police officer that's his friend. And he says, uh, I got this call. My wife's injured. What happened? And she says, well, I need to prepare you for this. We called you out here because she's still conscious. Uh, We wanted you to be able to talk to her. Uh, But she says to him, like, but she's really bad. Uh, she was walking along the road. She had gone out for a walk in the evening and she got struck by a car and she was pinned between the car and a tree. And they said, she's, she's conscious right now, but as soon as we move her, she's not going to make it. And so she says, do you understand to me what I've just told you? And Mel Gibson's character in the movie, in the scene, he looks at her and he goes, you're telling me this is the last time I'm ever going to talk to my wife. And she goes, yes. And so then after that one unfolds is like a two minute conversation that he has with his wife. And, and it shows you this real briefly in the movie, just in the middle of it. But that scene stuck with me for a long time. One, it's really well acted and it's powerful and it's gut-wrenching when you watch it. But what stuck with me for a long time after watching that was thinking about uh, what would I say in that scenario? What would you say? If the person that you love the most, your spouse or your kids or your loved ones, and you got two minutes or just a moment before they're going to pass, what would you say? And it really became kind of a profound thought experiment of what would you say in that situation? Because I think what that does is it reveals in your heart what's most important. What would I say in those moments? What would I say if I was the mother in that situation? What would I say to my children? What would I say, this is what I want them to hear? And so I started thinking about that this week and that came to mind because where we are in our journey through the Gospels is we're to the very end uh, of the Gospels. We spent the last two years going through all four Gospels in kind of chronological order together and we're to Jesus' very last words to his disciples. The last thing that he says to them before he ascends. 
And so I was thinking about how important it is what Jesus says. And that's not to belittle anything else he says. Everything that Jesus says is perfect and true and right. He is the logos. He is the divine truth that shows us exactly what God is like. But there's something really profound about what he says to his disciples in his parting words and the very last things they hear him say. And what's so profound to it, to it, to me in, in some ways is how simple it is, how concise it is. There's a clarity and a simplicity to what Jesus says. And we just read it. It's in Acts chapter one and in Matthew 28. Most believe those are kind of parallel passages. And what Jesus says is go make disciples of all nations. Go be my witnesses to the entire world and tell them what I've done and who I am. And that's it. That's his marching orders that he gives to us, his followers to his church to go and to tell the world one clear mission with clarity and simplicity in his words. And I think sometimes we confuse that message. We make it about a whole lot of other things and we miss the simplicity of what Jesus calls us to and what he's telling us to be about. And so I want us just to think about what it is that he says here, what his parting words are as we come to the end of really this two years of, of walking through the gospels. And the way I want us to look at it is just real simply this. First of all, what does he call us to do? Secondly, how does he say we are to do it? And then lastly, the power and the promise that Jesus gives us that makes it all possible. So what does he call us to do? How do we do it? And the power and promise he gives us that makes it all possible. And so let's start with just the beginning of what are we called to do? And the answer is something that we say here all the time. If you've been around Church of the Apostles, our one clear mission as a church is to make disciples that make disciples. Go make disciples of all nations. That's what Jesus calls us to do as his followers, as his church, to go and to make disciples. But I think what happens a lot of times is that's easily misunderstood. Uh, we miss part of it. We don't see the fullness of it. Or maybe it's just kind of vague notion to us and it gets kind of skewed or it's incomplete. Uh, sometimes we use church words like discipleship, make disciples and make disciples. And everybody goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you go, but I'm not really sure what that means. And so I want us to be really clear what Jesus is calling us to and what this looks like. And so let's just start here in Matthew chapter 28. We're actually going to go back and forth between Matthew chapter 28 and Acts chapter 1. And so if you want to keep your finger in one so you can go back and forth with me. But we're going to start in Matthew chapter 28 in verse 18, right? And so his disciples have come together and Jesus says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And I want to just stop there for a second. We're going to look at everything he says here. But there's an important part that I want to clarify right from the beginning because it's something that I think was, was being misunderstood all the way through Jesus' earthly ministry by his disciples. We've talked about this a lot, how Jesus is saying and doing some things and the disciples are taking it through their lens and their understanding, their limited understanding of who the Messiah would be. And they're not seeing the fullness of what he's saying. And so I think here when he starts to say, go make disciples of all nations, you're going to go to the world over, right? And he says that in Matthew chapter 28 and in Acts chapter 21, you're my witnesses to these things in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And he says to the ends of the earth. And it's important that we see that because what was happening a lot of times in the misunderstanding of Jesus's followers is they were thinking he was coming to be the king, the king for Israel in this place and in this time and overthrow Rome and lead us a, uh, from oppression and do all these things right here and now in this way. But Jesus kept kind of pushing that aside all the way through the gospels. 
We actually saw multiple times, if you've been with us the last two years, where they would come and Jesus, he'd feed the 5,000. And then it would say, and then Jesus perceiving they were going to come and try to make him king, he would slip through. And he'd go off and he'd go out on his own. And he did this over and over. They were going, no, 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 you're going to be like this and you're going to do it in these ways and you're going to be a political leader and you're going to be the king of Israel and you're going to get our taxes lower and you're going to get rid of the Romans and you're going to do all these things. And Jesus keeps going, no, it's not like that. It's far greater than that. It's far bigger than that. And they were trying to limit him in their earthly understanding of what was happening. And I think you even see remnants of here, of this here after the resurrection. Jesus has died and raised again. He's met with his disciples over 40 days. He's teaching and preaching. He's telling them. It tells us in Luke chapter 24, we looked at a couple weeks ago, that he explained to them how everything in the scriptures pertained to him. And how all of this was the plan and he always had to die and be raised again. But yet here in Acts chapter 1, they're still going, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And they're still saying that. And he goes, "Uh, not quite like that. Go make disciples of all nations. Go tell everyone. Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Samaria was the Jews' arch enemies that they couldn't stand. That they wouldn't even go through Samaria because they didn't want to be around them. He says, go to them. Go to the ends of the earth and you tell everyone. And so the first thing that I want you to see when we start to think about this idea of discipleship and what it means is Jesus is Lord over all. And his message is so big and so huge and so great. It is the deepest need of every single person in the history of the world. And it's not just for Israel. And it's not just a certain place or time. And it's not for a certain geography. It's for all people of all time to hear this good news of who God is and what he's done. And so the first thing that we need to think about when we think about discipleship, when we think about going and making disciples and sharing this message and who Jesus is, is that our deepest need is to know and to love God and to have a relationship with him. And through our sin, we've we've messed that up. But that Jesus has come to fix that. And that is at the very heart of what he's sending us to do. And so that's the very first thing that we need to think about. But then the second thing I want us to consider is, well, what does that look like? What does discipleship even mean? Who are we to be going to? And what does that look like? And what is he calling us to? I said to you a couple weeks ago, I think I've said it the last couple weeks, I had a professor in seminary that used to say, context is king. And what he meant is you can get a lot from what the context is saying and you let God's word stand over you and you read the the his word in context and who it's speaking to and what's happening. And I'll tell you, when you start to read Jesus's words here and what he's saying in the context, he defines for us what discipleship is. He tells you to go make disciples, but then he tells you what it looks like and how to do it. It's right here in this text. And so there's two things that he tells us very clearly in Matthew chapter 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And the first thing, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then the second thing, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And so there's two halves there. There's two parts to what he's saying. And the first part is go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to tell you, this maybe is not true of you. Uh, It's my confession. I want to put my misunderstanding on you. But growing up, When I thought of discipleship and I grew up in the church and I was around it a lot and I heard people talk about it, I always missed this part. That Jesus is sending these people here that are his disciples, 
right? He tells them to come and meet him and they go and meet him on this mountain and there he is and he's telling them and he's giving them their parting orders. So those that have been following Jesus are there and he's sending them to the world over with this message. And so the context is who is he sending and who is he sending them to? He's sending the believers that have seen the risen Jesus, that know who he is, that have been following him to go to the world to those that don't yet know Jesus. And so when we start to talk about what discipleship means and what it looks like, it's not just believers with other believers seeking to help them grow in their relationship with Jesus, although it is that. It's also going to those that don't yet know Jesus. And I want you just to think about that for a second. If that's not true, if it was just believers with believers, and I don't know if that's your understanding, but that's what I always thought growing up in the church. That's the way it was always talked about. Classes for us and the church to get together to grow in our relationship with Jesus. But if that were true, then the disciples would have totally been disobedient to everything that Jesus was telling them to do. And none of us would be here. If they didn't go and tell to the world over, the message would have never spread. We would have never heard it. So go make disciples of all nations. The first half of that is that they can be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What is baptism? It's the entrance into the church. Right? So what he's saying is help disciple them from unbelief to belief that they then are professing who Jesus is. That's the first half of it, right? So discipleship has to have that part as the first half. But then the second half is what he says there in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And so think of it this way. The first half is from unbelief to belief. The second half is from belief to maturity. And we're all in that process. Everybody in this room, we're all still in that same boat. Whether or not you've put your faith in Jesus or you're here and you're like, I don't know. I'm not quite sure about that. Okay. You're welcome to be here. That's part of our call. We want you to be here. If you've put your faith in Jesus, then we're supposed to be growing in obedience to him in every area of our life and helping each other do that. And that whole process is what discipleship is. From unbelief to belief and from belief to maturity. My experience is oftentimes in the church, we neglect one or the other. We either make it all about believers being together and helping each other. Sometimes churches get like evangelism explosion and we're going to go out and we're going to share with others. But then sometimes the discipleship part gets left behind. But the call of Jesus is that whole process. And we're called into it together. And that's what he's calling us to do as disciples. I want you to even think about if you use Bible words, big ideas, theological words, justification and sanctification. Those words mean justification means coming to a saving belief of who Jesus is. I am justified by grace through faith in what Christ has done for me. I am set right with God, not because of what I have done, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done for me. Right. So I'm saved not by my perfect record, but by Jesus is accounted to me by grace through faith. And as soon as I do that. As soon as God opens my eyes and the spirit moves and he shows me that I am justified. I am set right with Jesus. I'm set right with the father through what Jesus has done. That's justification. But then sanctification is now living that out in every area of your life. And that's a lifelong process for all of us. That's what discipleship is. Helping bring people to justification to that point of understanding who Jesus is. And then from that to maturity. And that's what he's calling us to. 
And so I want to make sure we see both halves of that. Because if we miss it, we're missing a big part of what he calls us to, to be as his followers. So that's just big idea, big high level picture of what discipleship means. Now the second part I want us to consider is how do we do this? What is he calling us to? Again, I think it's in the context. Jesus' statement here is concise and it's straightforward and there's not a whole lot that he says, but it's pregnant with all of this in it. So go back to what he says, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Hopefully this is really obvious and really straightforward, but it's right there in the middle and you go, how do we do this? He says, go and make disciples. As you're going, go and make so think about what Jesus did. Everything that we've looked at the last two years of Jesus' life. Everything he was doing was going and making disciples. That's what he was doing. He was calling people to himself. He was going and preaching and teaching and going along the way. But what did he do? We just looked at this. Even kind of, we were going back a little bit, right? We were reviewing last week with Peter. The call of Peter. Peter, come and follow me. Come with me as we're going along the way and we're going to make disciples. I'm going to make you fishers of men, Peter. That's what he says. Come with me. And so what does that begin to look like in the way in which we make disciples? If we were going to follow the way Jesus makes disciples, it's in everything. It's in all of life. Again, I don't want to put on you my misconceptions growing up, but maybe you had some of these too. If you grew up in the American church. Discipleship was like discipleship class at nine o'clock on Sunday morning, right? We're doing discipleship. Come here. Okay, that's fine. We might need classes like that. We might need to be equipped and to be helped with the way we think about it. That's fine. But is that the way Jesus made disciples? Did he say, meet me at nine o'clock here and once a week we'll spend an hour together? He said, no, come and follow me. And what we see unfold in the, in the gospels all the way through in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, follow me. And they go to a wedding, right? First thing they do is he takes them to a giant party, a wedding for days. It's as they go on the road. It's as they go into different towns. It's as they're eating meals. They go to these parties and these different places and all the things that you would do in your life. And Jesus is spending all this time with them, but there's just as much teaching There's just as much uh, correcting and encouraging and walking with them at the wedding as there is at the synagogue. It's in all of it. It's not just one or the other. It's in all of your life as you go. And that's the picture that Jesus gives us. I even think that's what partly what he's talking about in John 20 when he says to the disciples, as the father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Go and love the world. Go live your life and invite people in. That's why he prays for us in his great high priestly prayer that we looked at a couple months ago. Father, don't take them out of the world, but set them apart to you. But we're, we're called to be in the world, but not of it. And to be going as we go, making disciples in it. And so it's the first part I would say to you is to go and make. It's in all of life and everything we do. And we're called to be operating in that way. But then the second part, and I want you to think about what he says here for a second in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And then he says, to the ends of the earth, right? You will be my witnesses. What are we called, and what does he mean there, to be witnesses of? Witnesses to what? 
everything that he's just done. You are witnesses of who Jesus is and what he's done in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. Or in other words, the gospel, the good news of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. That's what he's saying. So you're to be my witnesses in everything and you're to be going and sharing the good news of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. And so when we say the gospel, sometimes we say the gospels, and I've been saying that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John referring to the good news of those four books of Jesus's life. But when we really say the gospel, what we mean is that we are separated from God because of our sin. But the good news is that God has come for us in Jesus to do what we can't do for ourselves. And it's the deepest need of every single person you will ever meet. That we need to know and to love God. That we were created for that. And we've blown it in our sin. But the good news is that God has accomplished for us what we could never do. And so I want you to think about when we're making disciples from unbelief to belief and from belief to maturity. That whole process. How do we begin to do that? Romans 1, 16. The Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew and the Gentile. Right? When we say Jew and Gentile, what he means is the religious and the irreligious. Those that grow up around the things of God and those that didn't. It's for every single one of them. And he says it's the power of God for salvation. And so you start to think about well, what does this look like? It's as we're going in all of life but making much of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. The gospel is central in every single bit of it. I love that uh, Tim Keller used to say that the gospel is not the ABCs, but it's the A to Z. And what he meant by that is sometimes we think of the gospel, the good news of who God is and what he's done for us to Jesus. It's just that, that beginning part of our faith. The, the ABCs, the building blocks, you got to have that first. And that's true. Unbelief to belief. You need to recognize that you're a sinner. You need to recognize that Jesus has done for you what you can't do for yourself. That's absolutely true. It is the ABCs. But what he was saying is it's not just the ABCs. It's the A to Z because what we need in our life is the gospel to be applied to every area of our life. And growing in obedience Growing and understanding all the things that Jesus has said and done is taking the gospel and applying it to every part of who you are. Your identity and what you do and the way you operate and where you go and the way you see people. And you see everything through that lens of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. I think that's why in Hebrews chapter 5 where it talks about those that are still needing milk. Right? And he's talking about their, their babies and their faith. And then he says, because they're unskilled in the word of righteousness. And I think what it's saying there in Hebrews is they're not taking the gospel and applying it to everything. And so when we start to think about what does discipleship look like, it's taking hold of who Jesus is and beginning to see how it affects every single part of my life. All of it. So I'll give you an example. I'm telling you that discipleship is unbelief to belief and from belief to maturity. So that means we're called to be sharing our faith with those that don't yet know Jesus. We're called to be inviting people in that don't yet know Jesus to experience what the family of God is like. We're called to be outwardly facing, to go to the world. Those are the clear marching orders of Jesus here. And you can hear that and that can make you scared. 
if we're honest, right? Maybe your personality is more introverted. And you go, oh, I got to go out and talk to people. That's okay. I mean, that's the way you're made. We have different personalities. Or you go, but if I start sharing my faith, people are going to ask me questions and I'm not going to know how to answer all of them. Yeah, probably. It's probably true. Or you start to go, oh, what does that look like? And how does that, oh, it seems messy and hard and all those things. And we start to get anxious about it. But the issue there is that we're not fully getting our identity from who Jesus is and what he's done for us. I'm not fully understanding the gospel. The good news that the God of the universe came and did for me what I could never do for myself. That my identity, who I am made to be, is to know and to love him above all else. That oftentimes my anxiety of I don't want to say something because people might think uh, I'm dumb. You don't really believe that, do you? And so you go, I just won't say anything. But that's unbelief in, in not fully grasping the gospel and who I am in Jesus. I'm now caring more what people think than what God thinks. And I need to be reminded of how great God is and how wonderful he is and all that he's done for me. And I need to see the gospel and I need to see it pushed down to every area of my heart. And so we start to talk about discipleship. It's as we're going in all of life, but it's through the power of the gospel and seeing who we are in Jesus in all things. And so God calls us into that in those ways. And so you start to think about, well, how do we do it? It's as we're going with the gospel being central in everything, reminding each other. And those that don't yet know Jesus, who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus and continuing to point each other to the glorious good news of who he is. But then the third thing I would say to you as we think about how we're doing it is in Acts there, chapter one, right? Right at the end is Jesus tells them, you're going to be my witnesses. Verse nine, it says, when he had said these things, they were looking on and he was lifted up and a cloud took him up out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So what do they say? It's two men dressed in white. I think it's angels. They see Jesus taken up and they're all standing there marveling at like, whoa, look at that. And so what do they say? Get to work. He just gave you your orders. Go make disciples of all nations. Don't just stand here gazing into heaven. Go. Go and make disciples. Go be his witnesses. And so when we start to think of making disciples and following Jesus and what that looks like, there should be a sense of urgency as we do. That doesn't mean that it's, oh no, if we don't do this, it's going to fall apart. But what it means is that we get to be part of what God is doing. And what it says real clearly here in his word is don't sit and wait. In fact, it says this over and over again, right? The Bible's full of this. Right? You, your life is but a mist that vanishes before dawn. Right? You have just a moment in this time to walk by faith. Use that to go and make disciples. I think sometimes we can do the opposite, and we go, well, Jesus saved us and it's all his doing and that's great. And so I'm just going to wait it out. The world's a big, scary, hard place. And let's just huddle up together and we'll encourage one another. 
And we'll pat each other on the back and we'll tell each other it's going to be okay. And then we'll just do that. And if that's the case, we're not only living in disobedience, but we're living in unbelief. Because Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Go make disciples. I think of uh, the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you know what 1 Corinthians 15 is, it's the apostle Paul telling you of the glories that are to come in our glorified bodies when Jesus returns. He says, the, the mortal will put on immortal. The, the perishing will become unperishable. And he goes through this whole thing and it's going to be this glorious picture. And then he ends with this like uh, singing almost. Oh, death, where is your sting? And oh, death, where is your victory? And he tells you this glorious picture and he gets to the very end of that passage and he just told you what's coming and how wonderful it's going to be. And then you know the very last thing that he says in 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Get to work. Go make disciples. Go proclaim the good news of who Jesus is. This is what's coming, but we get to be part of it right now, so go and make disciples. And so when we think about how we're to do it, it's as we're going, it's with the gospel central in everything, with having an urgency that we just have this limited time in our life to make disciples. But the last part I want you to think about, is you can hear that, and again, you can go, okay, that's great, but that's kind of scary. Can be intimidating. This wasn't in my sermon, but I'm going to add this real quick, just as it's coming to mind because it's really important. It can be intimidating, but that's why you're not sent alone. Right? God calls you into a family of faith, and we're all gifted differently, and then we're sent together. So you don't have to have all of it. You don't have to be the greatest evangelist that's the most outgoing person, but you get linked up with your brothers and sisters in the faith, and maybe they are. And you do that together. And so you don't have to have all of it yourself. But even so, even with that, even as we gather together in missional communities, and we go, we're going to do this together. And we have different giftings, and our giftings together, are, are they're better together than we are on our own. And then we start to seek that out. It still can be intimidating can still be kind of scary it can still be like i'm not exactly sure how this works and what this looks like but we are called to go and so i want to remind you the power and the promise that jesus says to do this and there's two things that i want you to see here matthew 28 verse 18 the first thing that he says there go therefore actually go back to yeah verse 18 sorry i was reading 19 verse 18 jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And I want you to really think about that for just a second. That Jesus says, after being brutally tortured and publicly murdered by the opposing forces, it looked like the ultimate defeat, and now he's resurrected from the dead and he's back. And when he says all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth, he's proven it. Death can't stop me. The Romans can't stop me. I have defeated sin and death. I am the God of the universe that has come to you and has been raised again and I have all authority. And then he says, go make disciples. You know, I I was going over this last night and I was walking through my neighborhood and I was thinking about that very thought that he says all authority has been given to me. The creator, sustainer, 
redeemer of all creation says all authority, go make disciples. That there is nowhere that you step. I was walking down the street in my neighborhood, each step thinking every single place I step, Jesus is ruling and reigning. That when I'm intimidated of going, I should go invite my neighbor. I should go talk to my new neighbor across the street. That their house and their lawn and the street to get there is held into existence by Jesus. There's no place that you go that he's not ruling and reigning. And we go, oh, I'm not sure how that works. Jesus is going, I am. I got it. I love you and I'm telling you what's best for you. Go make disciples. Go make much of who he is. Go proclaim his name. And there's nowhere that you will go that he's not ruling and reigning over it. And so if we could get that view that the end's already decided, that Jesus has already won, he has won, and he's bringing the fullness of his kingdom, and he's going to come again. You know, this time, this season, we talk about Advent, his first coming, but now we live between his first and second coming, and we anxiously await his second coming, but he is coming. Go, if we could live that way. I've maybe used this example before, but it helps me to think about it. Years ago, uh, Saturday, I'm watching a basketball game on TV. Texas A&M is playing Kentucky. I went to Texas A&M. I was excited to watch them. Kentucky was number one in the nation, and they were playing at Kentucky, and A&M was okay that year. And with about 10 minutes left, it was a tie game. And I was like, they might do this. Playing pretty good. But we had to leave. I think we had to leave for a soccer game. So I hit record. I'm like, ah, I'll watch it later. I kind of forgot about it. And we went to the soccer game. When I left, I said, I think it was a tie game. A&M's best player at the time had about like 15 points or so, 20 points maybe. He was doing really well. He was kind of keeping them in the game. And I left, forgot about it. Later that evening, we got home. I opened my phone and I see A&M won. They won at Kentucky against the number one team and they beat them. I was like, wow, they did it. How did they do it? And I flipped open and I saw their best player. His name was Elston Turner. Had like 15, 18 points when we left. Ended with 40 points and only missed three shots. I went, oh, that's how they won. Right? I looked at it and went, and so I went back and I turned the game on. And they show his stat line. He's got 18 points with 10 minutes left. And I know he ends with 40. And I know he only misses three shots. He's already missed all three shots. And I went, I can't wait to watch this. I'm going to sit here and watch every minute of it. And I know every time he touches the ball, he's not going to miss. And they're going to win the game. And suddenly watching, if I was watching that game live, I would have been like, oh, what's happened? Are they going to do it? But knowing the end, you can sit there and watch and go, I know how this ends. Suddenly all the anxiety and fear is gone. All the struggle in that. And the same is true. We know Jesus is one. We know when he says all authority has been given to me, he has all authority. He's defeated sin and death and he sends us to go and to make disciples. And we can trust him in that. Even though we don't know exactly how we get to this point to his second coming, we know it's coming and we know he wins and we know he's gonna use all of it for our good. And so that should bring us to a place of, of excited expectation. I don't know exactly how it's going to work, but it should be like watching that game. Jesus doesn't miss a shot. He's never going to. 
And I can trust him in that. And so when we think about that and we think about doing these things, remember what he says here, all authority has been given to me. But then the very last thing, Acts 1.8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Or the very end of Matthew 28 in verse 20, he says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All authority has been given to me. Wait until you're clothed on high with this power that I'm giving you. And then I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, God himself is going to come and dwell in you and with you. And it's going to unite you with Jesus so that he is with you in everything for the rest of your life. The same power that created the universe is now at work within you. Recreating, revealing the fullness of what he's doing. And so we go, well, I don't know how to do this. That's okay. You're not the one that's going to be doing it. It's going to be the spirit through you as you trust him and as you walk with him. And so as we end, I want you just to think about this, what we've looked at the last two years. Even what we talked about last week with Peter, the restoration of Peter. Jesus went and he got this ragtag group of guys and ladies and called them to himself. He had these disciples, most of them teenagers, right? That's baffling to me. As the father of three teenagers currently, three teenagers, they called, called these guys together and these ladies together and they see these things and he sets them loose and then he says, you're going to be clothed with power from on high and then you're going to be my witnesses. And what happens? Acts chapter two, the end of chapter one, chapter two, the, the spirit falls Peter stands up and walks outside. The same Peter that was denying him. The same Peter that was jumping in the water. The same Peter that was cutting ears off of soldiers. Same guy. Walks out and boldly proclaims the gospel. And 3,000 people come to faith that day. And the ragtag group of fishermen and tax collectors and political zealots that were all a mess in all these ways, that were fighting over who's going to get to be at Jesus' right hand and who's going to get to rule and reign with him, suddenly go and the world gets turned upside down by the good news of what Jesus has done. How's that possible? Because it's the power of the Holy Spirit in and through us. And the same power that was doing that in the first century is available to us today as we continue to trust him. And so there's nothing to fear. We know the ends. We know what's coming. Jesus has promised that to us. And we now get to be a part of what he's doing. And so my prayer is, as we look at this next year, for our church, is that we would turn to be more outwardly focused. That we would take seriously what Jesus says. That making disciples is from those, from unbelief to belief and from belief to maturity. And it's in everything that we do. And that we would live that way. We would live trusting him and the power that he provides through the spirit because of what Jesus has done for his glory. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you that you have come and met us in the middle and that you call us to yourself and you give us the opportunity to be part of what you're doing that you don't need us to do it, but you choose to allow us to be part, that you equip us with what we need, that you remind us of who you are. We pray that we would see that afresh today. I pray that we truly would be a people who wants to follow you in every area of our life, that we want to seek to proclaim that to others, 
to make disciples that make disciples. That we keep the gospel central in our own lives as we encourage one another in that, but also as we go and we love those around us for your name's sake. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.